we'll come back to chapter 1 in, in just a few moments. We spent a few weeks on the book of Galatians. That's unusual for what we've been doing. We've been doing uh, just a survey of these books, but uh, the, the issue of law and grace was an issue that I felt needed to be dealt with uh, rather, uh, rather extensively. We are continuing on a subset of that teaching on Wednesday nights for the next few weeks as we deal with the issue of repentance and its relationship to our salvation and what the Bible has to say about it. So often that subject is misunderstood. And we, we begin to do like the churches of Galatia did uh, in that we, we begin to uh, go back to our law and the obligation of law or the obligation of works uh, in the area of our salvation if we're not careful. And so very important that we understand this doctrine scripturally and biblically. And Paul spends an entire book of Galatians dealing with the subject. So we get to Ephesians. It's kind of a little different story. Um, the church at Ephesus was kind of the, the spiritual center, if you will, of the churches that were in uh, Asia Minor. You have uh, Aquila and Priscilla, if you're familiar with them at all, uh, in Scripture. These were servants, fellow servants of the Apostle Paul. The Bible says about them that their ministry was that they uh, were ministering to um, uh, the saints, and especially those that were uh, in ministry like Paul. Uh, they befriended him. They, they took care of him. But the Bible says of them that they addicted themselves to the ministry. That's the phrase that is used in, in Scripture, that they had such a heart to just serve, to just be blessing to folks. And uh, some, some people God gives that, uh, that desire to and the enabling of them to be able to do such a thing. And they were uh, there at the church at Ephesus. And uh, the church at Ephesus, as the uh, influence and the persecu- uh, dwindled and the persecution at the church of Jerusalem began to increase, the church at Ephesus became more and more important, and it became kind of the central uh, hub, if you will, of Christianity as uh, the church in Jerusalem began to uh, have more and more uh, persecution again, and and a lot of people were scattered from there. Um, Ephesus kind of rises up as the spiritual center, and uh, the city of Ephesus was about 300,000 people at the time of Paul's writing. Paul writes this book, uh, while he is in his first imprisonment at Rome, uh, along with uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, those are the books that he or the letters that he wrote uh, while he was imprisoned that first time there at Rome. And Ephesus, the letter to the church at Ephesus, is one of those letters. And uh, the church or the city there was kind of a, uh, a hub of Asia Minor. It was the, the commerce center of commerce mainly. It was the large city. Uh, in fact, they have. Uh, it was a religious, uh, uh, pagan religion center as well as for Asia Minor. They had uh, a temple there that was built to the goddess Diana, uh, which is known as one of the seven wonders of the world. If you look at the architect, you can uh, see that temple. Uh, that's in Ephesus. That's in the, the, the city that we're dealing with here. Um, so they had a lot of uh, magic. They had a lot of um, commerce that dealt with the occult and the, and the uh, idolatry that was going on. A lot of folks would build uh, or carve out um, idols. They would do a lot of images of these things in stone and wood, and then they would sell them, and it was a large part of their commerce. Um, and so when Paul comes in and he begins to preach, he spends, uh, on one of his missionary journeys, he goes to Ephesus, and he spends three years there. And uh, while he's there preaching, uh, he puts a hurt on the people that were the shopkeepers that were dealing in these things of idolatry, and he raises up a big stir and a big scuffle in the city uh, regarding that. 
uh, and people were saying, you're hurting our business. You know, we, we can't even make ends meet because your preaching is causing people to turn from idolatry and turn to God. And uh, so they were losing a lot of business. And this is kind of the setting that we find the church in. They're in a pagan city. They're in a city that's known for its, uh, uh, its idolatry. And yet it is a very, uh, it's, it's fairly solid church for the most part. Um, it is one that, that in the end of, or in the beginning of Revelation, uh, John was writing and, and one of the letters that was written to the church was that they had left their first love and that they needed to return to it. And that kind of ties in with the even, we, we see some of, this, some of this coming in what Paul is dealing with here. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesus and they're easily divided half and half. I mean, literally first three chapters and last three chapters. It's a very clear um, change in what Paul says in the letters. And uh, in the first half of the, uh, the book, or the letter, he is writing to the church, letting them know what their position in Christ was. Um, these were people who had been saved. They were solid in their faith. They, they weren't doing like the Galatians and uh, falling into doctrinal error. The problem is they did not realize... Um, what all God did for them when he saved them and the riches of his grace that was given to them and how that affected their spiritual growth. And so Paul uses this letter to address both of those situations. In chapters 1 to 3, you won't find him giving them any kind of instruction really to speak of. Uh, There's no imperatives. There's no um, uh, challenges or charges to them. Uh, But he, he basically goes through and he tells them, uh, this is what happened. When you got saved, these are the things that Christ gave you. These are the, the gifts that, that every believer gets when they get saved. And he uh, spends three chapters of this uh, talking to them about things uh, like uh, adoption into God's family, uh, redemption, or the inheritance that we have through Christ, the power of Christ that rests upon us, the life that he wants us to live as far as the uh, uh, victorious Christian life, the grace that was given to us, uh, heavenly citizenship that was given to us, and the love of Christ that's given to us and shed abundantly abroad in our hearts. And he deals with uh, those and, and a few others uh, in these first three chapters, trying to get the people to see he didn't just save you. He gave you a lot of other things that you're not taking advantage of in your life. And the truth is, sometimes I think in, in the day we live, here in 2023, uh, even as, as, as much as we, we study Scripture, we long to know the Bible, there are times we fall into those, those uh, same things. We, we don't realize what all God has given to us with our, along with our salvation and the power that we have through Him, the strength that we have through Him, uh, the freedom, the liberty that we have through Him, and all of the resources that God makes available to Christians. Let's look in uh, chapter 2, and let's, I'm going to read just uh, a verse here that kind of, uh, is is kind of a, a nucleus, if you will. We're going to look at two two actual uh, scriptures here that kind of tie together, where Paul is trying to address this with the, the church at Ephesus. In uh, chapter 2, verse number 10, he kind of sums it up by saying this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, you didn't just get saved to sit, soak, and sour. You, you came to, God saved you, and he gave you some, some things that will enable you then to live a life that is pleasing to you. He's foreordained that you're supposed to walk in good works uh, as a Christian. Now look in chapter 4, verse number 1, and you're going to see again he charges them with this. 
He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. So uh, if you want to divide the book into two halves, here's the way I would divide it. The first three chapters, Paul deals with issues of doctrine. These are biblical truths that you can, you can build your, your Christian life upon because they are foundational. These are things you need to have nailed down. And so the first half of uh, the book of Ephesus, he deals with doctrine. The second half of the book, he's going to deal with their spiritual life. In the last three chapters, he gives 35 imperatives. These are things you should do based upon, and this is the amazing thing, based upon the doctrine that he taught in the first three chapters. We, we teach often here in our church, doctrine is so important to us. We live in a time where, time where people don't enjoy coming to church if the church is going to teach a lot of doctrine because that's not the, that's not the get up and shout and amen kind of stuff at, at, at times. It can be if your heart seeks for that and hungers and thirsts for that. But a lot of times doctrine is just teaching the truths, the principles, the foundations that we anchor our lives to. We believe that this Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. It is what we build our Christian life on. It's what we anchor ourselves to. It's what instructs us how do we, how do we live now that we are saved. And, and we call that doctrine. Those are things that are unchangeable. They're truths that God has established. And uh, so he uses all three chapters to deal with the first three chapters to deal with doctrinal issues. And then in chapter 4, verse number 1, I like what he says here. You should already be there because we just read it. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. In other words, I've spent three chapters. I've spent this whole first chapter or the whole first part of the letter giving you biblical truth that you've either not been aware of or you've certainly not taken advantage of and you needed to be reminded of. And I've laid a foundation. Now he says, I'm going to teach you on what you're supposed to do with that. How do we make that doctrine apply to our everyday life? And he spends the last half of the book dealing with how to take what he taught in the first part and to live it out in their lives. And again, we see that quite clearly. So it's really, uh, this letter is really more of a instructional and motivational letter, if you think of it in those two terms. Uh, there's an interesting thing that, that takes place here that, that I think is, is crucial. Paul, Paul emphasizes in this book, and he, and he does so in the book of Romans a little bit, well, it, really quite a bit, if you'll take some time to read through and think this thought through as you're reading Romans. But both here in, uh, in the, the uh, uh, book of Ephesians and the book that he wrote to the Romans, Paul emphasizes that behavior does not determine God's blessing on your life, but rather God's blessing on your life should be determining our behavior. And I feel like, if, if I want to state that again, because I feel like we oftentimes in the day we live get this backwards, just like the church at Ephesus did. Behavior does not determine God's blessing on our life, but rather God's blessing on our life should determine our behavior. Now, I understand we can quench and we can grieve God's Spirit, and there are things maybe that God would like to do through us that because we have not done what was right, He may withhold that from us. But can I tell you that we look at it from the wrong perspective if that's the way we look at it. That there ought to be a gratitude in our hearts. There ought to be an, an understanding of what God has given to us in the process of redemption that is the motivating factor 
because of His manifold blessings to me in this area, because of the victory that He gives me, because of the strength that He gives me through His Holy Spirit to live the life that is right, because of all of these things that He has given to me, I then ought to use those as the foundation, the building blocks of living my life and growing in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and building on top of those things. And Paul emphasizes that both in this book and in the book of Romans quite uh, extensively, in fact. So he begins the book, and let's look in chapter number 1 and verse number 1. <clears throat> he begins the book with kind of a, a general salutation to some degree. And uh, he states the, the fact that he's the author of this book. So there's, for the most part, up until about, a, about 80 years ago, 100 years ago, pretty well everybody knew and understood, and even the first century church agreed that Paul was the author of this. Uh, there was no question about it. There have been some, quote-unquote, theologians, educated people that come along. They've started to shed some doubt on whether Paul wrote it or not. I'll tell you this, Paul was the human author of it. And if I'm wrong on that, when you get to heaven, he'll correct you. He'll let you know it's not that important. The fact is the Holy Spirit inspired the writer, whether it was Paul or someone else, and it came from the Holy Spirit ultimately anyway. But we believe Paul was the, the human author because he tells us here in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful uh, in Christ Jesus. And so uh, we see right at the very onset he establishes uh, his authorship there. Uh, there's there's a um, a distinction that is made in these first in this first chapter uh, of some of the things that that God de- does for us as we get saved. I'm going to give you some of them here, and then, Lord willing, this afternoon in the afternoon session, I've got a, a message that's based on this that we're going to talk about uh, all the ones that I could find at least in uh, uh, this book on what God does for us through redemption. I think it'll be eye opening to some of us, and there there probably is not one of them that. We don't know, but there are many of them, I believe, that we forget about and need to be reminded of. And you say, why is that important? Because Paul felt like he needed to establish these in the hearts of that church before he said, now you need to grow. Therefore, because of these things, the truth of these things, these will help give you the the ability to forsake the old man and to walk in the Spirit and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul felt like it was very important and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words to this church, then how much more applicable is it to us in the day that you and I live? That we know these things and we base the dependence of victory in our Christian life, our walk with the Lord, on the truth of doctrine of God's Word. Uh, Not just our own character, our own gritting of our teeth and making ourselves do it, but basing it on the things that the Bible says we ought to base it on. And so we're on Lord willing, this afternoon at 1 o'clock, we'll deal with those issues a little bit further. Um, the, um, let's look in chapter number, uh, let's go down to chapter number 4. And we're going to look at, I'm going to spend a few moments here uh, on this one. Uh, and then uh, we may actually get done a few minutes early this afternoon, we'll see. All right. Uh, let's look in chapter number four. I'm going to read down from verse number one because I want you to see some of the things that he deals with here. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. 
one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Uh, something had taken place in this in a couple of other of Paul's writings that were very, very important, especially to uh, both to the Gentiles and the Jews, but especially for the Jews to understand. And that was this, that for the first time since uh, Calvary was, was the point where it began, but for the first time in the history of man, Jew and Gentile could be united in a family of believers, those that trusted Christ as their Savior. So much so that in the book of Galatians, he says there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. There is not, there's, there's not a difference there. Uh, the same Lord overall. There is a unity here. And so when Paul starts talking here in chapter 4 of uh, endeavoring to keep the unity, he's talking here not so much unity within the church, although that was important, but the fact that it didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, that you had the ability to be part of this family that God fitly framed together. Uh, because he says in verse number 4, there's one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is above all and through all and in you all. didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Greek. For unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so from this point forward, he's going to be talking about um, some of the things that we should be doing because we have been given the gifts that were spoken of uh, in chapters 1 to 3. Uh, verse 8, he says, Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he ascended, uh, now he that ascended, what is it, uh, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens, above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And I want you to notice this as we get to uh, verse number 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And this is the purpose. If you ever want to know what the purpose of the local New Testament church is, it is found in this, in this verse. We're to be perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. church ought to be winning people to Christ, teaching and discipling them in doctrine. Paul told Timothy, the same commit thou to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And the fact that we are to take what we've learned from Scripture and doctrine and we are to teach others in that area and teach them to go and do the same thing. That we can do the work of the ministry. We can be workmen that need not to be ashamed and rightly dividing the Word of God. And the work of the ministry, of course, is to edify the body of Christ. Well, how do we edify the body of Christ? Number one, we do it through exhorting people that are already saved in the truth of God's Word. We teach them doctrine. We teach them the Bible. But secondly, we do it by winning people to Christ, sharing the gospel with those that are lost. And it is a double-edged sword. There's been argument in, in my lifetime there, back in the 80s and 90s, there was a much bigger argument about this in, among good churches. And I felt, I felt terrible at the time because I, I always thought, Satan is, is probably sitting back laughing that he's got good churches that should be out here doing the work of God, arguing with, with each other. And, and uh, there was a group of them that said, you know, we need to, we need to work on uh, knowing Scripture. We need to work on studying and learning and, and discipling, and that needs to be our, our primary focus. And then you had others that were saying, uh, no, we need to go out here and win as many as we can because the time of 
Christ's return is near, and uh, don't worry about discipleship. Don't worry about training. Don't worry about teaching. Just get out here and win, win, win as many as you can. And, and there was a tug of war between the two. And I don't find that in Scripture. In fact, Paul, I think, is, is quite strong in this, that there ought to be unity. The truth is, a church is to do both. A church is to win people to Christ. And then they are to take them and to teach them the doctrine of God's Word. And teach them to go out and do the same thing for someone else again. And this is God's plan. And so he tells us this in verse 12, "...for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry..." For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to in unity, uh, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. Now it's not talking about sinless here, but one that is, is spiritually mature, someone that has uh, been perfected, has grown uh, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of what doctrine. Okay, it is important that we study and know our doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speak the truth, and we usually are, have no problem with that part of it. The problem we usually have is in the next two words. <laughs> speak the truth in love. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. And you can speak the truth, and you can be uncompromising on the truth, but you can do it in a gracious manner. And he tells us this, "...but speak the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love." That's a verse that sometimes you read and it's a mouthful. But there is so much to this verse. Let's, let's read it one more time. I want you to read it carefully with me. From whom, speaking of Christ, from whom the whole body, Jews and Gentiles, doesn't matter. doesn't matter what nation you come from, what race you come from, what, uh, what background you come from. It does not matter. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a brother and sister in Christ. You are part of this family that God has put together. From whom the whole body, fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, Notice this, every, every joint, every part has a part, according, notice this, to the effectual working in the measure of every part. What's he talking about there? Every single one of us has a part in the body. And he says we're to fulfill that part according to the measure, uh, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the work that the Holy Spirit of God does in each and every one of us. He gives to each of us different gifts according to the grace that's given to us. And we are to work, and we are to work at the unity of the body within those things that He has given to us, the effectual working. As we grow spiritually, based on the doctrines of the Word of God, we begin to build on that and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be a strengthening of the body, not a schism. It's not a divisive thing. It's not something to cause contention. But it's something that is supposed to draw the body even closer together. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. If, if you feel like you're growing spiritually and your growth spiritually is creating a division among other brothers and sisters in Christ, that growth is not of the Holy Spirit. The growth of the Holy Spirit will always be to the effective working of edifying the body and making increase of the body 
and causing it to be even more strongly, fitly framed together. I believe this is why Paul so clearly emphasized just a few verses above that, that we're to speak the truth in love. Because here's what, here's what happens too many times. I, want to, I really want to hit this issue because I think it's something that we do often in practice without even thinking about it. And that is this. As, as our walk with the Lord increases, as our spiritual growth increases, as we begin to understand Scripture better through our personal Bible study and reading and, and asking the Lord to help us understand Scripture, it is, it is our propensity, it is our tendency in the flesh to think higher of ourselves than we ought. And we began to say, I learned this. But here's Brother Harold back here. He didn't learn it. <laughs> I know something he doesn't know. That's probably a reverse on that, but anyway. Or Brother Mark or uh, Miss Tish or, or Miss Linda. And, and our, our human flesh takes knowledge. And the Bible even tells us that we've got to be careful because knowledge often puffeth up. It causes us to say, I've arrived spiritually. Now, can I tell you, that should not at all deter us from pressing toward the mark of growing spiritually. But there ought be a sense of humility in this. And he goes on to tell us this a little bit later as we get, get down um, unto him. And I, I don't have, maybe do I have the verse here? I might have the verse here. Let's see here. Verse, is it this one? No, it's not that one. I'll find the verse for you, but it's in this book that where he says, Unto him who is able to do exceeding above... Oh, here it is. Chapter 3, verse 20. I just happened to look at it down as there it was. Now, notice what it says here. Now, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now, that, that phrase is important. Because he talks about, and we're going to preach on this, Lord willing, next hour a little bit fuller. He's talking here about our growth. And he's, he's not just using this verse out of his context and saying, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that means anything we ask him in life, he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all of that uh, or anything. Is he able to do that? Sure. Is that what this verse is talking about? No. He's talking about our spiritual growth. He's saying he's able to do this, this wonderful work in the area of spiritual growth. If you have a hunger and a thirst to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? God wants that too. And if you pray for illumination and understanding of Scripture and you are pursuing after this spiritual growth and uh, 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 growing more in holiness and rejecting more of sin in our lives, God is for that too. And He is going to do exceeding abundantly above in that area all that we can ask or think. Because as much as you may want that in your life, He wants it more. And He is going to enable and He's going to help you in ways that you never thought He could. But notice what it says here as we get to verse number 21. Uh, Let's read verse 20 again and come into 21 so you can get the gist of it all. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the what? The power that worketh in us. Is it of myself that I'm growing? Is it because of my dedication and diligence to study Scripture that I have gotten to this spiritual plateau and level? No. It's because the Holy Spirit has enabled me to have understanding. He has worked in me exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think. Now, notice what he says here. Unto him who? The person that did the study and the person that's growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Unto him who? Unto the one that did the work in us. 
That would be the Lord Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. Unto Him, notice this, be what? Glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And then Paul says, Amen. So be it. This is, this is a foundational truth. The work of growing in the Christian life has nothing to do that we can glory in. Now, it ought to be our heartbeat, it ought to be our pursuit, it ought to be our desire, but any work done in my life is, is because of what God has done in it. And by the way, any work done in your life is because of what God has done in it. And we should never, 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 never look down our noses at someone that is a Christian that is not to the spiritual level that we are. Because chances are they're farther along than we are. And we just can't see it. Pride is a nasty thing. It is something that can quench God's working in our lives. And Paul said, when you think you stand, let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. And we are putting ourselves in harm's way spiritually when we get to the place where we begin to grow and do these things. And we do them with an arrogance and an attitude about us that look at where I am. And boy, I wish these others could be just as great a Christian as I am. And I will say this. Rarely have I ever met any Christian, if ever, that would ever actually say those words or even think consciously those words. But by our actions, we still, in our inner man, think that. I'll give you a personal illustration, and I don't like to share personal illustrations very often, but <clears throat> when, when my wife left a number of years ago, I, I, was, I was at a very, very dark place, very, very depressed, very sad, uh, brokenhearted. It was very hard for me. And uh, I remember sitting in my living room praying one evening, begging God to, to bring my family back and, and to heal uh, the thing. And I remember sitting in, in my chair, and I, at that point I had been involved in ministry probably about 30 years, uh, roughly, maybe, maybe 25, somewhere in that range. It had been a number of years. And I remember sitting in my chair that night, and these words came out of my mouth. I was praying, nobody in the house. And I said, Lord, after all I have done to be faithful to you, and this is what I get out of it. Those words hardly got out of my mouth before the Holy Spirit broke my heart. And I thought, how arrogant of me to think that God owed me anything. How arrogant. I will tell you this. I was sharing this with a fellow that uh, just recently that is going through something very similar. I said, brother, this is where I was at. I, I told him what I went through. I shared, I shared that as a story with him. I told him, I said, I would have never dreamed. I would have never dreamed that I had that kind of pride in me. As if to think that I was some kind of a blessing to God because of my service. Can I tell you, it's the other way around. 
He is a blessing to me because I get to serve Him. And I mean, it wasn't a moment's notice of saying those words to the point where I was broken. And I said, Lord, forgive me. How could I ever say such things? But He used that to show me something. And that was this. A person who I really felt at the time, I, I, I don't think we ever get to the place where we feel like we've conquered our pride. But there are those of us that, that re, we, we try to work hard on this issue of pride and humility. I think most of us here have that kind of mindset that we want to have a humble spirit. And while we joke about things sometimes, and you know, I, my, my daughter and my son, I've told them before, you know, I wrote a book on the world's ten most humble men and how I trained the other nine. You know, uh, and the sequel to that, The Road to Humility and How I Walked It, you know. And we get proud of our humility sometimes. But, you know, I really, in, in the course of ministry, and especially as long as I had served in, in that, I had labored and battled this thing of pride for so many years and thought, I need to just keep a humble spirit about things all the time. And I'll tell you this, that it was an eye-opening experience to me when God showed me the level of pride I had in my heart with just a simple statement of that. And I say all that to say this. It is possible for you and I to harbor pride and never even think we have it. But by our actions, we show that we do. I think Paul deals with this quite clearly. When he says in verse number 21 of chapter 3, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Not by the labor of His people, but by Christ Jesus. Throughout all ages, world without end. In chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about the fact that we're to, we're, to, we're to labor to edify and to bring strength to this body that we're part of. According to the one that worketh in the measure of every part, the effectual working in the measure of every part, this, this Holy Spirit that does the work in us to do these things. He says, and we're going to go down to verse 22 with me, and then we'll be done. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds. And there we see the pride. Having the understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which is after God, uh, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And this is the heartbeat of Paul as he writes this letter. He says, folks, you're, you're rich in Christ, but you're living like spiritual paupers. You don't understand what all God has done for you in the work of redemption. If you could have a full understanding and know these things, when it comes to living your life, you could base it on a solid and a sure foundation. You could do it giving all glory to Him, realizing that it's not because of the things you have done that you've succeeded, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
And I hope this will help us to have an understanding of the book as we read it. It's six chapters. It doesn't take long to read. Maybe some of you all go home and read it this week <coughs> carefully and prayerfully. And with these thoughts in mind, that he takes the first part of the letter and says, these are truths we need to know. And then he says, now that you know them, giving all the glory to God, here's what you need to do to live according to those things. And I'll tell you, Ephesians is a wonderful book. I love it. I love a lot of Paul's writings and um, enjoy the book of Ephesians as much as any of them. Uh, it is extremely uh, practical in our day-to-day lives today because we begin in chapter 4 and verse number 25 as he begins to start with just one thing after another. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to do. He wraps it up with saying... Because of all the things you've been given in chapters 1 to 3, and here's how you ought to live your life, he deals with every relationship. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents, servants to masters, masters to servants. He deals with all of them and says, because of the foundation that you have through the redemption of Christ, it ought to transform and change every relationship of life. And this is how it ought to be changed. And he tells them, husbands are to love their wives. And they're to lead their families as they follow Christ. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Parents are to love their children, to care for their children, to instruct them, to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Children are to honor, obey and honor their parents. Masters are to treat their servants with kindness. Servants are to do diligent work to the master as unto the Lord. Each of these things being based on what God has done for us through redemption. And then lastly, he goes into chapter 6 and he says, Wherefore, put on the whole armor of God. You try to live this way, the battles are coming. And they certainly are real, aren't they? And he charges them, uh, you need to be able to quench the wiles of the devil. They're going to come. And here's how you do it. And he uses a lot of what he taught in chapters 1 to 3. In fact, if you take the whole armor of God and you begin to tie them to some of the things he teaches in chapters 1 to 3, you'll find that almost every armor of God that he gives, every point he brings out is based on one of the doctrines that he taught in the first three chapters. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. It teaches us how to live, and I hope it will be a help to you. And uh, let's go ahead and dismiss. We're going to be uh, five minutes early today, so you all get a few extra minutes to fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, how, what a blessing it is to our hearts, how it does instruct us. And Lord, it really has a way of pulling away 